Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer us, for we are poor and needy. Gladden the souls of your servants, for to you, O Lord, do we lift up our souls. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. So give ear to our prayer, O Lord. Listen to our plea for grace, and teach us now your way, that we may walk in your truth and unite our hearts to fear your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I'm delighted to be here with you tonight. I'm delighted to be back in a church. Uh, in Escondido, your brothers and sisters have been worshiping out of doors under a tent. And uh, there's something kind of charming about that. And uh, the Lord, up until this Sunday, has blessed us with good weather. So it hasn't been uh, too bad to be in the tent. And uh, the first Sunday we were in a tent. Um, I reminded the brothers and sisters that it brought us back to the origins of our Dutch Reformed churches where um, preachers used to preach in secret out in the fields uh, because uh, those who believed the gospel were being persecuted and it was the only safe place to meet. So I said it was taking us back to our roots whether we wanted to go back to our roots or not. But uh, surely it is good to be able to meet indoors, especially on a hot day, a smoky day, and to be able to fellowship together, to praise the Lord together, to pray together, and to hear his word together. So I'd ask you to turn with me in the word of God to the gospel of Luke, chapter 7. And uh, the very attentive among you will be thinking, didn't you preach on Luke chapter 7 last time you were here? And the answer is yes. But um, this is not the same part of Luke chapter 7. So um, we're giving our attention tonight to Luke chapter 7, verse 11 through verse 17. So we take up our reading of God's word at Luke chapter 7 at verse 17. Let us hear God's own word. Soon afterward, Jesus went down to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the young man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So far, the reading of God's word. Jesus raising the widow of Nain's son is a fairly familiar story in the scriptures. Um, yet it's only recorded by Luke. 
And it's very brief, isn't it? Just seven verses. And yet it's really remarkable, and remarkable in the way in which it reveals Jesus to us. Reveals really essential things about Jesus to us. And it's interesting how Luke presents this story to us. Um, One way of looking at this story at the beginning is to think in terms of crowds. Uh, Luke has reported crowds, Luke 5 verse 1, and a crowd followed him. And then later in Luke 5 and 6, uh, the crowds have grown and we're told there are great crowds following him. And there's still a great crowd following him here. As he leaves Capernaum, Uh, His home base, a town of some size right on the Sea of Galilee. And he's heading out of Capernaum to the little town of Nain. Nain was such a small village that we're not exactly sure where it was. Um, Scholars think it was probably about uh, 20 miles away from Capernaum. Uh, But we're not exactly sure where it was. It was so insignificant, it's not really much remembered. And so Jesus is walking. And Jesus has his disciples with him. And Jesus has a great crowd following him. Now, boys and girls, I don't know what a great crowd counted in those days. Probably not thousands of people, but maybe 100 people, 200 people. Uh, In the roads that they had to travel, small country roads, it would have been a lot of people strung out. And in time, they get to Nain. They were headed to Nain. We're not told why, but we begin to see that Jesus had business in Nain. Jesus had something to do in Nain. And when they get to the city gates, which cannot have been very impressive city gates, but nonetheless marked, the entrance to the city. As this great crowd following Jesus approaches the gate from one side, a considerable crowd, Luke tells us, is approaching the gate from the other side. So we have a great crowd coming into the city and a significant crowd trying to get out of the city through what must have been a small gate in a small road. And what does that mean? See, it's good to try to picture what's going on uh, as this uh, event is recounted for us. It must have been a lot of confusion, right? You have two crowds coming face to face with one another. And uh, I suppose even though it was a narrow road, there are probably significant shoulders to the roads called fields. And uh, so people could spread out. But there was probably a good deal of noise, a good deal of confusion. I think that's what Luke wants us to think about. Noise, confusion, crowds, people going different directions. May even have been one or two people got annoyed. Um, It's hard to imagine people becoming impatient. But that happens once in a while. And uh, here's this, this kind of confusion. And what did they discover? They discovered that as Jesus, his disciples, and the large crowd are moving towards the gate, they see this other crowd coming out and see that it's a funeral procession. And they're carrying the bier on which the body of the dead young man 
is laid out. And this further increases the confusion and the difficulty. And then we're told that accompanying the bier of the young man to the gravesite was his mother. And she's described to us. She was his mother. She was a widow. And this was her only child. So immediately in the midst of this confusion and this commotion, Luke is intensifying for us the emotion of this occasion. And, and ancient readers would have seen even a level of emotion in this text that many of us would tend to miss. Uh, we can identify with a mother losing a child. We can identify with a widow um, uh, having no family support. We can identify that she has no other children to encourage her. We can understand that loss and that grief and that loneliness. But we may not fully appreciate that in the ancient world, this probably meant that she was left pretty well destitute. There was no social welfare programs. Um, families were on their own, and when you didn't have a family, and when you were a widow, you might not even be able to inherit what limited wealth the family had had. And so in addition to all the emotional loss that she's feeling, she may very well be feeling additionally great economic anxiety, social wonderment. What will become of me? And so there's confusion in her heart, in her experience, not just in the crowd that surrounds her. And then we come to verse 13, really a, a remarkable verse where we begin to see Jesus revealing something of himself to us. I'm going to suggest uh, there are three points in this text of revelation from Jesus. I thought first Sunday night back would be too shocking to have two points or four points. So we have three points tonight. And the first point is that Jesus reveals himself in a rescue here. A rescue. Who's being rescued? Well, I think the resurrection of the dead is so remarkable that we tend to go immediately to that part of the text, and that's very understandable. But I think the way Luke tells the story, the first rescue here, the essential rescue in a way, is of the widow. Jesus, we'll see, point two, raises the dead. But before he raises the dead, he rescues the widow. And I think this is a very important part of the revelation of Jesus that we have in this text. Verse 13, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her. I think this is, is a crucial point Luke is making to help us to see the essential heart of the Savior. Jesus was a Savior who saw and cared for individuals. 
Here's a crowd. It's easy to get lost in a crowd. It's easy to be distracted by a crowd. It's easy in a crowd not to see individuals. That's something preachers sometimes have to think about when we preach to a crowd. Do you see the individuals? The truth is, yes, we do. So you have to stay awake. Uh, But Jesus comes into this crowded, chaotic situation, and he sees the widow. Now, maybe she was easy to see. Maybe in that society, um, the family always walked in front of the beer or behind the beer or next to the beer. Perhaps she wore distinctive clothing, as is sometimes the case with mourners. We don't know exactly how it was that Jesus saw her, but he realized, he realized that this was a woman in distress, this was a woman in need, and he focused on her individually. He saw her. His heart went out to her. He spoke to her. And, And in the confusion, in the noise, what does it mean that he spoke to her? He had to have gone up fairly close to her. The good news was there wasn't social distancing in terms of disease in those days. But you can imagine with a lot of noise going on, he had to approach fairly close to speak to her, to be heard by her. He he comes to her, and we're told he has compassion on her. This is a very strong word. It doesn't just mean he loves her. It, It has sort of the sense his heart was broken for her. It's used a couple of other times in Luke's gospel. Uh, When the good Samaritan sees the wounded man by the side of the road, who'd been passed by by the Jewish religious leaders, we're told that the Samaritan's heart went out to the wounded man. He had compassion for the wounded man. Perhaps even more tellingly, this word is used in um, the uh, parable of the prodigal son. When the father sees the prodigal from a great distance coming back, we're told the father had compassion on his son. His heart went out to his son. His heart was broken for his son. Jesus has a strong, emotional, compassionate reaction to this woman in her grief, in her loneliness, in her abandonment, in all of her worries. He cares for her. And then he says to her, weep not. Have you ever gone to a funeral or spoken to people you know well who are in the midst of profound grief and you don't know what to say? Most of us have had that experience at one time or another. We just don't know exactly what to say. And maybe you've had the experience, some people have had the experience, you say something and then you walk away and say, I shouldn't have said that. Why did I say that? Well, let me tell you, most of the time, the thing you definitely should not say is weep not. Um, Any psychologist in the modern world will tell you that's insensitive. But you see, Jesus had a right to say weep not because... He was going to change her whole world. He was going to change her whole situation. He was going to rescue her. 
and the cause of her grief that had led to her weeping, he was going to take away. And so legitimately he says, weep not. And he goes to the beer and he touches the beer. Uh, Jews were very careful about what they touched relative to the dead. Because if you touch the dead, you're unclean for a week. It complicated your life in all sorts of ways. But Jesus is not worried about any of that. He goes to the beer, he touches the beer, he stops the procession, and he says to the young man, Arise. And the young man sits up. And remarkably, Luke adds the little detail, and he speaks. Just as if Luke is to say, there's no trickery going on here. This is no shell game. This is no uh, pretend resurrection. This is no weekend at Bernie's. Oh, see, you shouldn't laugh at that. Now you reveal the kind of movies you watch. My son made me watch that movie. Um, um, This is a real resurrection. And then in a wonderful, touching way, uh, Luke records, you know, just these small number of verses contain so much. Luke gives the young man back to his mother. That's why she doesn't need to weep. They've been restored. Life has been restored. They've been restored uh, to one another. What a rescue the Savior has performed here and how it reveals his heart to us. The way in which he sees individuals in their need. The compassion he has for them. The care he takes of them. What a beautiful picture is given here of who Jesus really is. And then secondly, not only we see the rescue, but we see the resurrection. The resurrection of this young man. The text focuses not only on the widowed mother, but focuses also on the young man himself. Here was a young man who was dead. They were headed to the cemetery. They were headed to the place of burial. You know, the Jewish custom was, if possible, bury the dead within 24 hours. Um, Everyone was in a shock that this young man had died. They hadn't had a long time to get used to what was going on. And now suddenly, the shock is turned to a whole new look at the world. Young man, arise. And the young man rises. And here we're given such an insight into the power of Jesus. What a remarkable thing he's able to do. He simply speaks a word, and the world changes. Now, maybe the world is only a little world of a small town that we've all but forgotten, uh, of a woman and a son whose names we don't know. But think what a display of power that was in their lives, and how radically, how profoundly, how amazingly, their lives were changed. And this little story in this resurrection power shows us how truly and fully Jesus is the Lord of life. 
He's recorded as saying in John's gospel, I'm come that you might have life and have it abundantly. That's why Jesus came. He didn't come to take away life from us or deprive us of life, but to give us life and give us life that would be more abundant, more joyful, more glorious, and most importantly, everlasting. And that power to do that, the power to keep that promise is displayed here in this action. He is the Lord of life. And as he could raise this young man from the dead, so he would raise himself from the dead. Remember in John's gospel, he said that so remarkably. I have power to lay down my life and I have power to take it up again. No one takes my life from me. He's the Lord of life. He oversees life. He oversees all of our days. And that's important for us to bear in mind, especially in these days, where some people are in a panic about getting sick and dying. That's understandable. But if they realized there was a Lord of life, who had numbered all their days, they might be relieved of some of that panic and fear. Now, having that confidence in a Lord of life doesn't mean you can be an idiot and show no concern about taking care of yourself and others. Idiocy seems to be a common human condition, uh, but Jesus never encourages idiocy any more than he encourages panic. He encourages us to look to him as the wise one who cares for us and keeps us and promises life. So that just as this young man rose from the dead and just as Jesus rose from the dead, so we too will one day rise. Death is not the final word. And... That's sometimes hard to believe. It's sometimes hard to believe at a cemetery. It's sometimes hard to believe in a memorial service. But that's the promise of our Savior. Death does not win. Jesus wins. And Jesus wins as the Lord of life to bring life, everlasting life. To his people. So he reveals himself in the rescue of the widow. He reveals himself in the resurrection of this young man, and then he's revealed in the report that goes out about these events. Verse 16, how did the people respond when they saw this young man get up and speak and go to his mother? Fear seized them. Fear seized them. It's interesting to see in the Bible accounts when people are afraid. They're afraid when some great manifestation of God's power and glory takes place. And uh, you've probably noticed that almost the first thing angels always have to say when they appear to somebody is, fear not. Um, when the glory of God is revealed, when the power of God is revealed, 
very natural reaction is fear. And I guess one of the things that has troubled me in these days of, of virus is how little fear I see in our land. Fear of God. Fear of his hand. Last week or two I've thought disease and heat and fire and power outage and no church. How much more does God have to do to get our attention? And yet most people don't seem to be paying any attention. And God is saying to all of us, are you thinking about me in these things? Are you recognizing my hand in these things? Now, these have been hard times. And uh, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm retired, so that makes life in some ways easier, some ways more difficult. I don't have to go anywhere. And I don't have anywhere to go. Uh, and people call me and say, how are you doing? And I say, well, I'm halfway between boredom and restlessness. It, it's a difficult time. And then when we are able to gather at church in Escondido, I'm able to look around at some of the older folks in our church who, as kids, experienced the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands for more than four and a half years. And I say to myself, I don't really have it that bad. I have food and I have air conditioning. And whether it's a blessing or not, I'm not quite sure, but I have television. Um, we need to take a little time to think about the awesome display of God's power among us and be sure that we're right with God in these fearsome days. So the people were afraid and they glorified God. They recognized something divine was happening amongst them. And one of the things they said, part of the report that went out was a great prophet has arisen among us. Now, that was part of the messianic expectation. You remember Deuteronomy 18, Moses had prophesied, the day will come when a prophet like me will arise. And, and people were looking for the prophet who would be the Messiah. But when they say the, a great prophet has risen among us, they may not quite have risen to the level of saying he is the Messiah, but they are saying... He's just like Elijah and just like Elisha, those great prophets. You remember the stories of Elijah and Elisha, don't you? Those stories of the great prophets who raised the dead. Who raised the dead of dead children, of needy women. The widow of Zarephath and the Shunammite woman. These were women who had cared for the prophets, and the prophets cared for them, and their children had died, and by the power of God, the prophets were able to raise the children from the dead. A remarkable event. 
And now another great prophet has arisen who has come to a woman bereft of her only child and has displayed his power. Some scholars have even suggested that the village of Nain was at or near the place where the ancient town of Shunem had been. Maybe that's why Jesus was headed to that town, to make the very point that he stood in the tradition of the great prophets. We don't know for sure. It's a nice point if it were true. But there are also remarkable differences between what Elijah and Elisha did on the one hand and what Jesus did on the other. What Elijah and Elisha did in raising the dead was done very privately and rather secretly out of the public view. What Jesus did was powerfully, publicly done. Elisha and Elijah had had to pray intensely and in a prolonged way for this resurrection to happen to those children. But Jesus spoke a word of command and it happened. A great prophet can accomplish great things by prayer, but only the Son of God can accomplish things by a sovereign, miraculous declaration. Elijah and Elisha had raised the children of women they knew and children they knew and loved. Jesus raises the child of a stranger. And in that way, I think we see how broad and wonderful his compassion is. Reaches out beyond any sort of intimate family friendship limits. It's remarkable, isn't it? And they're right to say a great prophet has risen among us. He also says God has visited his people. If you look in the Old Testament, when Joseph was dying, he said, uh, the day will come when God will visit his people and lead them out of Egypt. And over and over again in the Old Testament, there are references to God visiting his people as a great and powerful saving event that God will work out amongst his people. And that's what's being reported here. God has visited his people. He's come to his people. He's done something remarkable among his people. So these people reported what Jesus had done. They glorified God. The word went out. Beyond Galilee, down into Judea, the report went far and wide. But as I thought about it, it seems to me that the report that went out stressed almost entirely the power of Jesus. And that's understandable, isn't it? Great power is displayed here. But I don't think the report gives much evidence of the compassion of Jesus. And I think that's so important for us. I think in the history of the church, we can see at many times, the power of Jesus was stressed. But the compassion of Jesus 
was missed. Sometimes if you go into medieval churches, you can see displays of Jesus reigning in power. This is particularly true in Eastern Orthodox churches. There's always a dome with this huge figure of Jesus, the Pantocrator, the ruler of all things, and always looking quite stern, quite powerful. And because they missed the compassion of Jesus, many in those traditions turned to the Virgin Mary as the compassionate one as the mother who would understand and be sympathetic. But this story is reminding us Jesus is more sympathetic even than a mother. Jesus is more sympathetic than anyone. His heart goes out to his people, and he provides for his people. And so Jesus is revealing himself to us as the one who is powerful, the great prophet from God, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the Lord of life who can raise the dead. But he does that out of the compassion and brokenness of his heart. So we see this wonderful picture of Jesus, and the almost necessary question in conclusion comes, so why doesn't he do more of that now? Why doesn't he do more of that now? You just had a funeral in this church in the past week. Why do there have to be Christian funerals? Wouldn't it be more compassionate if we didn't have to have funerals? And what Jesus says to us is, that day's coming. That day's coming and there'll never again be a funeral. When the dead in Christ will be raised to everlasting life. When everything will be made new. When every tear will be wiped away. But today is not the day of glory. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day for the gospel to go out and call people in compassion to come to Jesus and be saved. And that's why we have to endure. That's why we have to suffer. But as we suffer and as we endure, we must never forget that Jesus loves us, that Jesus' heart goes out to us, that Jesus understands us, that Jesus cares for us, each one of us individually in our need. And so the word of God comes to us tonight to remind us that Jesus is Lord of life in power, and in compassion. May each one of us have that confidence that he cares for each one of us. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, how thankful we are that the Savior is presented in such remarkable ways to us as the one who sees and cares each one of us and that he is the Lord of life. In whatever the struggles are that we are facing, O oh Lord, in whatever burdens we are bearing, may we be assured deep in our souls that the Savior has compassion for us, that he understands us, 
that he'll one day make all things right and that in the meantime he'll be with us. Hear us and bless us and encourage us, we pray.